From time to time, I'm struck by how different people are. So we know it, we're not all the same, that's for sure. And yet, at the same time, there are similarities between some people that put them into one category and other people into a different category. So let me explain what I mean with an example, perhaps. Just recently, it was the World Cup in Qatar. Now, if you're someone who likes football, can you put your hand up? Anyone who likes football? Excellent. And if you're someone who doesn't like football, can you put your hand up? Excellent, many thanks. And if you're someone who didn't know whether to put your hand up or not, can you put your hand up? There we go. So we have three groups of people, three categories. Those who clearly like football, those who definitely don't like football, and those who don't mind football but would really not describe themselves as football fanatics. So we don't all like the same things, that's for sure, and there are, there are lots of ways in which we differ from one another. So another example, some of us are detail people. We like to know all the details about everything. And other people are big picture people. For them, the details don't matter so much, but the overall picture or idea is very important. So I don't know which category you'd put yourself into. Perhaps that's something we could talk about later or in house groups this week. But the reason I'm saying all of this uh, is because we're starting a new series this morning. And it's a series that's going to take us all the way through to Easter. And during these next 12 weeks, we're going to be looking at Matthew's Gospel again. And if you remember this time last year, we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is perhaps the most well-known of all of Jesus' teaching. And that can be found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Then two years ago, we were looking at the very start of Matthew's Gospel, the first four chapters where Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus. And he explains how Jesus is both the long-awaited Messiah and Emmanuel, God with us. And it's this kind of double identity of Jesus that's something um, that's at the heart of Matthew's gospel. And hopefully that will come out a little bit more over the next 12 weeks. So as we've said, this is actually the third time in a row that we've begun the year in Matthew looking at his account of Jesus' life. And we know that Matthew is just one of four books in the Bible that reveal some of the details about Jesus' life. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all different. But there's quite a lot of similarity and overlap too. So I want to start with a warning And the warning is that what we're going to look at over the coming weeks and months will probably feel quite familiar. And that's both good and helpful, but I think there's also a risk or a danger that we might switch off because we already know all the things that we'll be hearing about and reading. And there's an even greater danger that we're going to switch off, in fact, because not only will we be looking at familiar passages, But as Lou said, our plan is to take three whole months to cover just two chapters 
Uh, and today we're beginning with chapter 8, the first four verses. Uh, and we can all agree it's not very much. But if all goes to plan, in 12 weeks' time, we'll be looking at the last four verses of chapter 9. And that's not very much either. So I'm warning us about a danger because I know that some of us like details. We're not all the same. For some of us, we'll be very happy to go at a slow pace and know that we're making progress little by little. But if you're someone who likes the big picture and perhaps going at a faster pace, then I will encourage you and myself to keep reading the whole of Matthew's Gospel between now and Easter so that we can see how these two chapters fit into the big picture. Because as I've been discovering myself these past few weeks, and and it has been quite a surprise, I have to say, these two chapters are the only two chapters in Matthew's Gospel. There are 28 chapters in Matthew's Gospel. These two chapters are the only two chapters like this, where we have a, a dozen incidents or events involving Jesus and other people that when you put it together as a series, they're not like any other chapters in this Gospel. And I think that Matthew has done that deliberately. And it will be worth our time to ponder the detail of these two chapters because if you're like me, most of the time we read through quickly. Ten minutes to read these two chapters and we're done. But the details are really important if we want to understand why Matthew has written about Jesus in the way that he has. So having given us rather a long introduction... And a bit of a warning, let's get on with what these four verses are all about. So chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. It's a scene-setting verse, isn't it? Matthew sets the scene for us and reminds us that Jesus has been up a mountainside. And if you can, just flip back to chapter 3. We're going to put this in context. Flip back to chapter 3. And you'll see just from the headings that it mentions John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus, after his baptism in the River Jordan, spends 40 days and 40 nights in the desert or wilderness. And there Jesus resists the devil's attempts to tempt him, showing in a way that he is like us, and in another way that he's not like us. And then when John is put in prison, Jesus relocates to the area around the Sea of Galilee, and he begins to preach for the first time. It's halfway through chapter 4. And he begins for the first time to call people to follow him. And then Matthew tells us this at the end of chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. So this is like a snapshot of what Jesus is doing. And then Matthew tells us the result of all of that. And this is the result from the very end of chapter 4. Matthew tells us that news about Jesus spread all over Syria. 
It's not surprising, really, that news is spreading about Jesus. But it's interesting that Matthew specifically mentions Syria. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Matthew then tells us that people brought to Jesus all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed. And again, we can expect this because if Jesus is someone who is able to heal every disease and illness, why wouldn't you take anyone who's ill to Jesus? He's the one who can do it. And Matthew tells us very simply that Jesus healed them. And if this was happening today, imagine if this was happening today, it would create an enormous reaction, wouldn't it? If someone somewhere was healing people from literally every illness and disease, and I think news would spread very, very quickly. And we'd have exactly the same reaction as Matthew records in his gospel, which is that large crowds followed Jesus. We can easily imagine that, can't we? We've already been talking about football, so we can picture the kind of crowds that would have been following Jesus. Or two weeks ago, it was Christmas, and we can think of the crowds of people shopping in the center of each town in Britain, even though we've had two years of COVID. Jesus attracted this kind of attention, I think, because exactly because of what he was doing and the fact that he was able to do what he was doing. He was meeting a huge need for many people. And so the crowds that he's drawing are no surprise. What is a surprise, though, is Jesus' reaction and what he does next. And that's at the beginning of chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So we get the picture, don't we? Jesus has been healing all of these people from every disease and every illness. And then he goes up a mountainside when he sees the crowd to teach. And the only thing that we have in the next three chapters, the only thing that Matthew tells us is what Jesus taught. And if you haven't read that, if you haven't read through the Sermon on the Mount for a while, let me encourage you to do that. Take 20 minutes if you can and read again, or maybe even for the first time, what Jesus wanted to say to those people whose attention he had certainly got by virtue of what he was able to do and what he had been doing. Probably glad that we don't have time to go into it now. But if we pick up at the end of chapter 7, Matthew writes that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught with authority. Now, we live 2,000 years on from the time when Jesus did these things and spoke these words, but thankfully, Matthew helps us to know and to feel the impact of what Jesus had at the time. He taught with authority. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he taught the people. And that should make us pay attention too. So Jesus has given his 
huge, famous sermon. He's come down from the mountainside. And the big question is, obviously, what's he going to do next? What's going to be the next thing that Jesus does? That brings us to the beginning of chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So it's a consistent theme, isn't there? And then Matthew tells us that Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And again, we need to picture the scene. It's a man who comes to Jesus. It's a man who comes and kneels down before Jesus. And if there's one thing that will stop a crowd in its tracks... It would have to be a man with leprosy who comes and kneels in front of the person you're following. There's nowhere to go. And again, picture the scene, but there's so much detail that we don't know. We don't know who this man is. We don't know where he's come from. We don't know how he knew Jesus. We can ask, is it obvious that he has leprosy? Or was it just known that he had leprosy? And wasn't he meant to stay away from other people? Isn't that common knowledge? You have leprosy, you stay away from people. In fact, this is the first time that anyone with leprosy has been mentioned by Matthew. It's, of course, possible that leprosy was one of the diseases that Jesus had already healed amongst all the people that had come to him. Or this may be the very first time that Jesus has met someone with this particular disease, and that's why Matthew is mentioning it. In any case, it's a man with leprosy who kneels down in front of Jesus. So let's imagine that we're there. Perhaps we're just behind Jesus, part of the crowd, but able to see everything that is going on. What what do you think would be going through your mind at that moment? Perhaps we would be reacting towards the man who has knelt down and stopped us from following Jesus in the way that we wanted to. Perhaps we'd be asking ourselves, is he out of his mind, coming so close to other people when he has this incurable and highly infectious disease? And the past couple of years have have taught us all a lot about how diseases are transmitted and spread, haven't they? Or perhaps we would have been focused on Jesus. Perhaps we would have been wondering how Jesus was going to react to the situation. And react is all that Jesus can do, because it's the man with leprosy who is taking the initiative. It's it's. The man with leprosy, Matthew tells us, that speaks to Jesus. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And in some senses, that is a strange thing to say. If I was in his shoes, I think, well, I'm not sure that I would have said that to Jesus. There are other ways, perhaps, to ask for healing. But if we analyze his words, What do they tell us about the way that he was thinking and what he was wanting to communicate? He's certainly putting the onus on Jesus, isn't he? He puts the ball in Jesus' court, so to speak. 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. So it's clear that he believes that Jesus has the power and the ability to transform him physically. But he's not presuming anything. Even though he has probably heard, maybe even seen firsthand, Jesus healing every disease, every illness. In what he says to Jesus, he's not saying that he knows what Jesus will do for him, what Jesus will do about the disease that he's suffering from. Surely Jesus can and will heal this man. That would be a logical conclusion from everything we've read up until this point. There is no sense at all from what Matthew has written so far that Jesus has been either unable or unwilling to heal anyone who's come to him. But like I say, this man is not presuming anything. He clearly has faith in Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me free, cleansed, healed. But perhaps he feels very inadequate. Perhaps years of experience of rejection by others has taken its toll on his mental state. And yet he has dared to approach Jesus as an act of desperation, perhaps, willing to try anything to be freed from his suffering, but recognizing that the outcome depends not on his will, but on the will of the one he's speaking to. He places his ha- himself in Jesus' hands, totally, totally dependent on him. And so what is Jesus' response? We know the story so well, perhaps, that we're no longer surprised or amazed by the fact that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man. What Matthew doesn't say is that Jesus walked towards the man. He tells us that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. That, so that is how close the man had got to Jesus, the man with leprosy. He's come and knelt before Jesus, close enough for Jesus literally just to touch him. That's how close you have to be kneeling in front of someone for them to be able to reach out a hand without taking a step. This man has come very close indeed to Jesus in spite of his disease. He has gone as far as he possibly could And we don't know if he expected Jesus to touch him or not. But he certainly put himself in a place where Jesus could touch him. And Jesus, echoing the man's own word, simply says, I am willing, be clean. And that's all all it took because Matthew tells us that immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. There must have been some instant physical change of some sort. I've never seen anyone with leprosy, but perhaps the man's physical appearance changed at that point. This is, in the whole of the 28 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, this is the one and only time Matthew tells us in detail 
about Jesus healing someone with leprosy. It's also the first miracle that Matthew describes in detail that Jesus performs. It's the first of nine miracles that Matthew records for us in these two chapters that we're going to spend time following through slowly. And as I've already said, these two chapters are unique in the whole of Matthew's gospel. There are no other chapters like them. And hopefully I've done enough to persuade you that it's going to be worth our while to take our time looking at these between now and Easter. But it leaves us with questions, doesn't it? What do we make of this? It's a familiar story. What does this mean to us? Not just that Jesus healed this man, but the way that it happened. And for me, it goes back to Jesus' double identity. He is the Messiah, but he's also Emmanuel, God with us. And I think it was last year, if you hear, or maybe the year before, where I was talking about the meaning of the word Messiah, that it means anointed. It's what we do to kings and priests and prophets, but particularly kings. So calling Jesus Messiah, which is very much the the focus in the first early chapters of Matthew, and then all the way through, we're talking about Jesus being the king. I think that's important. Just think with me for a second. Where else, I said this is the first time in Matthew, but where else do we find people suffering from or healed from leprosy? I never went to Sunday school as a child, so I missed out on on a lot of things. But if you think, okay, leprosy, where does that come up in the Bible? You might think, first of all, there was Moses. And after Moses had met God... um, God was kind of proving to Moses who he was. And one of those signs was Moses putting his hand in his cloak and he pulled it out and it was leprous. And they put it in again, he pulled it out, no leprosy. Does that ring some bells? Who was healing Moses at that point? It has to be God. It has to be God who's just revealed himself through the burning bush and everything else. The other famous incident where someone is healed from leprosy, is in 2 Kings chapter 5. Again, there's not the time to go into all of it, but it's a Syrian general called Naaman. And it's well worth reading the whole chapter. I'm going to encourage the house groups to do that because I think there's a real resonance between that story where the king of Aram, which is Syria, writes to the king of Israel and says, you've got to heal this man of leprosy. And it all comes about because of a servant girl. It's an amazing story, a servant girl from Israel who's been taken essentially captive to Syria, who says, oh, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you. So it's an amazing story. But anyway, um, the king of Israel's reaction is, I don't know how to heal this person. Because he thought the king should be able to heal him from his leprosy. And here, Jesus, the Messiah, is shouting at us, Jesus is the king who can heal from not only leprosy, but every illness and disease can do that. 
And we haven't quite finished, have we, with our four verses in chapter 8. We've got three quarters of the way through, but the fourth verse of chapter 8, Jesus wants to continue instructing this man. And he says to him, see to it, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And that little word gift in that verse, in what Jesus says, is kind of the the key that resonates with the story in 2 Kings chapter 5 and the healing of Naaman. It's well, well worth reading, but I'll leave you to do that for yourselves later. So what does this mean to us? What difference does this mean to us? Jesus is the king of compassion. This is a story that's all about compassion and Jesus doing something that no one else could do for this particular man who was bold enough, courageous enough to stop Jesus and the crowd in their tracks. But the other thing that follows from this story is that Jesus has done more for us than he did for that man. Leprosy is a disease that you're not healed from, but that you're cleansed from. And that has an echo for us in terms of the sin that Jesus cleanses us from and the consequences of all the things that we've ever done wrong. So even though it is just four verses, it has so much to tell us and speak to us right here today, this morning, and what Jesus has done for us. So it's just the starting point. We're going to carry on for another another 11 weeks looking at these different incidents and events where Jesus comes into contact with people, does something amazing. But often it's the, the thing that Jesus wants to teach after he's done the amazing thing that I think we really need to pay attention to. So well worth coming Sunday by Sunday and we'll learn together. I hope that's okay.